Welcome to Canadian Defence Focus from CDR Radio, produced by Canadian Defence Review Magazine. This series of podcasts features interviews with leaders and experts in the defence industry, as well as reports and profiles on the very latest in defence technology. Hello, everybody. Welcome to CDR Radio. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm the aviation editor and senior staff writer for the magazine. And I'll be your host for this episode. Today's episode of CDR Radio is sponsored by Paraton, a trusted partner for over 35 years to the Canadian Armed Forces and the Royal Canadian Air Force, providing industry-leading mission sustainment solutions for both domestic and deployed operations. Paraton is Canada's only prime contractor for avionics, electronic warfare, and automatic test equipment sustainment on a fighter platform. So please visit them at paraton.ca. So I'm pleased to welcome today my guest. He's a fighter pilot who achieved the rank of Lieutenant General, and he had the distinction of being commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. General Yvonne Blondin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jyoti. It's uh, great to be uh, back with the Canadian Defence Review and cooperating in, uh, in this discussion. Thank you so much, sir. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I believe you're doing a bit of consulting work. Uh, so just to kind of set the stage, uh, maybe you can just share a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah, well, uh, I retired in 2015 from, uh, from the position of uh, commander of the RCAF. I uh, moved to uh, Hudson, just outside of Montreal, and uh, I've been doing some uh, part-time consulting in the aerospace industry. Uh, I'm presently attached with uh, Samuel Associates as a senior aerospace associate. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that's keeping you busy. How have you found uh, private life after service life? Well, much different. Uh, I have to tell you, Jyoti, I didn't prepare for, for retirement. I, I lived the Air Force for 35 years, and, and I lived only the Air Force uh, until uh, the day I retired. Uh, so coming out of there was uh, was a bit of an adaptation. And I, I'm lucky uh, I, I'm married to a great woman, and uh, she uh, she really helped me uh, through, through the transition. And now after five years, I can say that... Uh, I just love being with my wife outside of Montreal, living in our in our house uh, in the suburbs, uh, playing golf, working just enough to keep busy, just enough to to feel like I'm still part of uh, of uh, of this uh, big community, but but really enjoying life. I'm so glad to hear that, General. I know some people perhaps have difficulty in transition, but uh, sounds like you've done it well and, and you have that support with your wife, which is awesome. So let's jump in and talk about the Royal Canadian Air Force. The service seems to have persistent pilot shortages. Why is that so? And in fairness, like, I mean, that, that also existed during your tenure as commander as well. Oh yes, uh, th- this is not a new problem. Um, I can I can say easily that we had this uh, this issue for the last twenty years, uh, and, the, and the issue is uh, an issue of production. We we've never been able to produce the number of pilots we needed to to be able to fill all the requirements, and we've uh, we've lived for twenty years with uh, somewhere between ten fifteen percent shortages uh, all along. So it it created problems in periods of uh, high employment in the industry, we would lose a lot of pilots. And uh, when the uh, periods like we see today where the commercial industry is doing bad, uh, we managed to keep uh, keep our pilots in, but we never managed to catch up. We're always behind the ball and, and it doesn't change. The, uh, the switch we made to contracted uh, flying training 20 years ago it kind of locked us in in, in some, some numbers that uh, uh, were difficult to achieve. And because of the lack of, uh, of pilots, we, we actually lacked the number of, uh, of instructors to, uh, to train. And there's always a reason why we couldn't make it. But uh, here we are 20 years later and we still have the issue. So hopefully uh, with the, uh, the new contract coming out and we're trying to renew our training system, hopefully we can solve this issue. Why was the pilot numbers set at minimums 
And I think you probably alluded to it in a way, it's a contracted system, but also there are shortages in instructors. So, but if you're just setting your targets for the minimums, you're never going to get <laughs> numbers higher. You need a system where in good years, you can produce more than you need. But being a uh, almost a government agency, it's difficult to overproduce. People are always going to try to uh, to save money and uh, and and produce what you need, but but not necessarily go overboard. And we've never managed to overproduce to be able to have a surplus when when times uh, get more critical. And there's an inherent lag into a training system when you recruit your people to become a pilot. You're not going to make make him a pilot or her a pilot until three to seven years later. So you don't see the, uh, the the production result until years after you've decided to recruit your people. So you recruit your people in years that you need them, but you never know seven years from now if uh, if you if you if you should have recruited more, if you should have recruited less. Uh, so you don't see the impact of your uh, of your recruitment based on the, the production uh, you achieve. And when when you realize that uh, your production is low, even if you want to crank up the uh, the mill and train more, it's going to take years before you see some of the results. And the rotation of people in decision making positions is usually two or three years. So. The people who make the decisions don't see the results, and the ones who, uh, who are seeing the results are, are not the ones that made the decision. So uh, all of this makes it difficult to achieve uh, the numbers you want. It's almost a little bit comical, but it, it, uh, but it makes total sense because the time differential there is so long between cultivating and uh, growing those pilots to become qualified members and what you might need in terms of like the pressures, or I guess, you know, the civilian, the attraction from the civilian side, where there's a lot more money than in the military. So, yeah, I, I see the I see the conundrum, <laughs> and I don't know if there's a good if there's a good solution to that. And it, it speaks a bit to the future aircrew training. Do you think that future aircrew training is being designed such that it will try and solve some of these issues? Mm, I don't think so. I think we're trying to to give it a bit more flexibility than we had with the previous contracts by uh, putting some some numbers up and being able to say we want the uh, whoever is going to win to be able to increase or decrease production by fifteen percent, which is going to give us some flexibility. But at the same time, uh, whoever wins is going to be impacted by the same uh, the same effects that uh, that has always affected the uh, the training that are are not necessarily under control. If you get a problem with an engine and you've got a grounded fleet for a few weeks, few months, you lose production. Uh, you're having issues uh, recruiting instructors. It impacts uh, production. A civilian company under contract will not want to hire more instructors than the government is going to pay. So they're going to put a limit into the uh, the assets they will have, the assets they will maintain and buy, and the, the people they will hire. They don't want to lose money. If the government doesn't put money towards this and, and tell the companies and pay the companies to have more than they need in terms of, uh, of people and material, you're not going to have the flexibility to be able to cover when you have an issue. So every time there's an issue, every time you don't have enough pilots or you don't have enough airplanes, you're just going to fall behind. So it's going to be difficult to be able to increase your production uh, by, by the 15% required. But we'll see. So then what will be the advantage of future aircrew training? Well, the advantage is, uh, is uh, teaming up with industry. Training pilots is a, a, a huge effort that any, uh, any armed forces need to go through. And really, they're not training towards their only needs. They're training towards uh, civilian industry as well. We hire brand new pilots or we train brand new pilots. We keep them for 5, 10 years, uh, 15 years. And then uh, the airlines are going to come and recruit them. Uh, so. They're passing through the uh, the Air Force, and it's always been like that, and it's natural. 
not too many people want to spend 35 years uh, doing military flying uh, all across the world. They usually do it for 10, 15 years, and then uh, they'll, they'll move on to something else. And the airline industry is a great place to do this. The airline industry is in a growth mode in terms of, uh, of pilot requirements. So, of course, they, they, they will try to get the, as many experienced pilots they can. And the, uh, the Air Forces have always been a great source of, uh, of trained pilots for them. So the Air Force is training for its needs, but it's training for everybody else's needs. Partnering with industry is a way of uh, saving on, on some of the costs, but as well uh, trying to, um, to save some of the, uh, the military people that you need to train not just for training, but for all kinds of things. Everybody needs to be trained in first aid. Everybody needs to be trained to deploy. Everybody needs to be in good shape to be able to, uh, to, to deploy anywhere in the world. While if you're pushing some of those jobs, some of those tasks to some uh, civilian instructors, civilian maintainers, mechanics, they can specialize and stay in their positions for 10, 15, 20 years. And they do not need to overtrain or train for, for other things that are not connected to their job. So there are some advantages in, in doing this. What is your thoughts about the recent discussions that have been in the media about attracting foreign trained pilots to the Royal Canadian Air Force? I know that pilots in the Air, uh, Royal Canadian Air Force have served with other nations, clearly on exchange, but some have just left the Air Force and, and joined other Air Forces. So I guess now we're trying to trying to look for the same coming back. But do you think that that will help numbers at all? Well, you may have seen this recently, but but really it's been uh, we've been trying to do this for the last 20 years. Uh, I, okay. I remember being in Bagaville 20 years ago, and uh, we would uh, would discuss with our exchange pilots uh, if if they, they did want to stay. But it's a two way street. You can try to attract foreign pilots to come to Canada, but uh, other countries are in the same uh, are having the same difficulties uh, retaining their pilots, and they'll try to retain or, or attract their their Canadian pilots. And I, I can tell you, there are Canadian pilots that went on exchange in Australia and uh, never came back. There are pilots that went on exchange uh, in Europe and never came back. Sure. Now, Canada is a great country, but those foreign pilots, when they come here in the winter, they don't necessarily want to stay that much. Uh, they're looking forward to going back to, uh, to their country. So we, we managed to, uh, to, to attract a few here and there, but, uh, but it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I, I thought was quite interesting about that particular initiative is that those pilots will still have to go through Immigration Canada and get citizenship or, or, or whatever type of status to be able to live and work in Canada. And I don't know if the, if the Air Force has the ability to kind of speed that process at all. To my knowledge, they don't. I think they're able to maybe ask Immigration Canada for things to be kind of sped up, but... To me, it just doesn't sound like it's a very responsive system to kind of meet the needs of the Air Force. No, it's uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Joe T. Uh, the RCF doesn't have the ability to uh, to to change this or to uh, to try to manage a, a speedier process. It's been inconvenient. Uh, it uh, it certainly didn't help in uh, cases in the last few years, and uh, th there's no easy answer because for Canadian authorities. This happens maybe once or twice every couple of years, and for them, there's no rush to do this. Uh, it's not like uh, we we would be able to uh, to to attract 20, 30, 40 pilots a year, and then there would be a reason to try to speed up the process. It just doesn't happen often enough to uh, get the RCF some some uh, leverage to, uh, to to try to massage the rules. Right, right. Well, I guess that just. That kind of tells me all I need to know about that initiative right there. <laughs> so let's talk about fighters. You were a CF-5 fighter pilot. You were a CF-18 fighter pilot or qualified on the CF-5. I know you flew the CF-18. Boy, fighters is a big topic in Canada. It seems to be that one program that just goes on and on, but it, it, not the only one. There's many programs in Canada that that seem to have a long gestation. Let's first talk about the interim fighter capability project. There are so many facets to it. Originally, when when the gov the existing government, the the Liberal government came into power, they said that they wanted an interim fighter capability and they were going to sole source 
the uh, F-18 Super Hornet from Boeing. What were your thoughts about that? Well, I, I, I left the, uh, the office in 2015. This is when uh, the last year of the, uh, the conservative uh, government, uh, I remember that summer being in discussion with the government. Uh, they were really trying to push through and uh, get the RCF, the F-35. And I remember going going on a on a hill a couple of times where we we thought it would be announced. We were very close to an announcement, but elections coming, the government didn't want to get into this issue just before the election and make it an election issue. So they backed off of this, and we uh, we we never went through the door with the with the project. When the liberals came in for the last few years uh, before the election, they had been uh, they had been against the F thirty five program and had been uh, publicly saying that if uh, they would uh, come in power, they they would not buy the F thirty five. They would do another competition, but uh, the F thirty five would be out of it. So of course, when they came in power, everything stopped uh, for the fighter acquisition, and the. The, the first directives that came in uh, because everything was stopped was that uh, any acquisition would be delayed and the uh, the government came up with a uh, with a plan to uh, to get the, an interim capability well that plan was never discussed with the RCF the RCF didn't know about this this did not come from the uh, from the RCF it came from the the government the decision to go sole source toward uh, the super hornet was made without discussing it uh, with the RCEF. Oh no! <laughs> I, I I was retired at the time, but I remember sure. the uh, my surprise at this announcement because I I knew fairly well that uh, if you're going to bring an interim capability, the Super Hornet may be called an F-18 and Canada's flying F-18s, but the difference between the early F-18s that Canada bought and the Super Hornet that uh, the government was planning to, to buy, it was a completely different aircraft in the sense that pilots cannot jump from one airplane to the other uh, just because they're flying an F-18, they'd be able to, uh, to, to be qualified on the Super Hornet, that mechanics would be able to, uh, to go from one to the other easily, that the logistics chain would be the same. They are, in everything but the name, two different aircraft. You need two different groups of qualified pilots. You need two different groups of mechanics. You need two logistic uh, chains. You need two training mills that are different. So you cannot combine them. So adding a small fleet of up to 24 airplanes and to believe that uh, you can actually add to the capability that you've got with the, the Canadian F-18s was, was a bit naive and trying to uh, give this and believe that uh, it's going to be easy to, to do. Buying more F-18s was a better idea. Mm. Buying Super Hornets was not going to be helping. Even, even if, we, uh, if you look at Australia, and you can say Australia had F-18s, the same, the same thing as uh, Canada, uh, but the same time. And Australia bought a bunch of uh, Super Hornets to go with them. Why wouldn't it work for Canada? And, and the reason is simple. The Australian Air Force planned this. They did not uh, buy Super Hornets to be replacing or adding to the uh, task being done by, the, by their F-18s. It was uh, an addition of airplanes that they could use for electronic warfare and uh, a complement to, to the, uh, the F-18 fleet. It was planned. It was built to be able to operate with the uh, their F-18s and then be able to support the F-35s that they were going to get. Canada getting a bunch of, uh, of Super Hornets like this without knowing what kind of airplane we're going to buy in the future, how they were going to be operating with the, uh, with the F-18 was not something that was planned, was not something that could work. And it was, uh, in my mind, uh, some, something that was ill-conceived. Yeah. And one of the reasonings behind it, if I remember correctly, was the government was saying, oh, well, you know, we want to make sure that we have enough aircraft where we can do NORAD concurrently with an expeditionary role, whether it be NATO air policing or otherwise. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, hasn't the RCAF always needed to do that? <laughs> like, I mean, why do we need interim aircraft to do this role, which supposedly you were always supposed to be able to do concurrently. There was no discussion. There was no, uh, 
intend in trying to, to understand how things were done and how it could be done better. It was just imposed. It was just uh, brought forward and, and, and uh, put forward as a fact. The RCF or the, the Canadian Forces for the last 50 years had to cover a NORAD role, a NATO role, plus a bunch of national roles and sometimes uh, contingency international roles. For that, it had a limited number of airplanes. When uh, the Soviet Union was uh, was a threat, we bought 138 F-18s to be able to station some in Europe and to station some in Canada, so that we can cover we could cover the two roles. When the uh, the Soviet Union was no longer there as uh, as, as a threat, and most uh, Western countries reduced their armed forces, we went from. 138 airplanes to somewhere around 90 CF-18s that we kept in Canada. And we felt that with that number of airplanes, we could do our NORAD mission. We had enough airplanes to cover our requirements for NORAD and be able, if uh, something happened in Europe, to be able to cover NATO. For the next 20 years after the 90s, between 1990 and uh, let's say 2015, we knew that uh, we did not have the airplanes to cover the same level of taskings that we had while the Soviet Union was there, while NATO was the wall in front of the Soviet Union. We knew that, and the government knew that. that we accepted that uh, we have less money, we have less resources, but with the number of airplanes we have, we can probably cover the roles not necessarily the two concurrently. We didn't expect that there would be a big war scenario similar as to uh, when the Soviet Union was around, where you would have to defend North America against the Soviet invasion and be able to have to defend Europe at the same time against a, a Soviet invasion, which was the, uh, the, the Cold War scenario. We were beyond that. We had a scenario where we thought there may be an emergency or something to cover in Canada and our needs to to, uh, to be there. There may be something happening in Europe that we need to help, but the chances of something that big happening in both places at the same time are remote. So therefore the numbers can be lower and we accepted that. We actually built the requirement based on government input uh, towards the, uh, the future fighter requirements for 10 years based on a number of 65 fighter airplanes, which we thought was, was kind of low, but could, could, do, uh, could do the job. When the liberals came up and said, there's not enough airplanes, it was out of nowhere. Certainly the RCF did not say, no, if, uh, if you want to buy uh, more airplanes, well, we'll take them. But it wasn't based on a discussion. It wasn't based on, on, on how would all this work. Uh, so it, it, it created a bunch of problems into, okay, well, uh, how do we do this? If you're, if you're going to buy 24 more airplanes, how will they fit into what we're going to be doing? Because the way we've been working uh, in the last 10 years is be able to offer a, uh, an effort in Europe if required. In the meantime, we do our patrolling in uh, North America through NORAD. And uh, we've been using the F-18s uh, to do contingency, uh, contingency roles. The taskings that we got uh, to go to Yugoslavia, the taskings that we got to go to Iraq, the taskings that we got to go to Libya, uh, taskings we got to go to uh, Eastern Europe, were all part of a small deployments of F-18s to support a coalition effort somewhere in the world. And we expected this to be something that we could easily support while we're doing our uh, missions in Canada. But in order to be doing this, Everything needs to be working well together. So we, we've been working last 20 years with a fleet of uh, somewhere around uh, 80 to 90 airplanes, but roughly about 100 pilots, which are the limiting factor into, into all of this, uh, about 100 pilots that can train to do their stuff be able to do the NORAD mission when they're at home in either Baggettville or Cold Lake, and be able to be deployed if the government is sending airplanes uh, uh, across the world. The deployments were relatively small. Uh, we were always counting and telling the government that we can deploy six F-18s. We, we call it a six-pack. You send six F-18s, and they can do eight to 12 missions a day. 
in a, in a four plane scenario. You send four planes for a few hours, they come back, you can send them again. Sometimes you can send them three times a day, but uh, once or twice a day was the norm. In order to do this, you need ideally 15 pilots deployed with that six pack. That 15 pilots deployed become the limiting factor into all this. If you deploy 15 pilots for three to four months, they need to be replaced. They are experienced and qualified pilots. There's a 15 more pilots back home that are preparing to replace them. So they're training for that, uh, for that mission. And there are 15 pilots that have been replaced that went back home that need some leave, need to do stuff that they were not able to do. So you're working with a minimum of a two to one ratio to be able to support a contingency effort. Ideally, you want to do it with a three to one ratio so that you have enough people to rotate around. So you need somewhere between 45 and 60 pilots, experienced pilots, all qualified pilots to be able to support one contingency operation of uh, six aircraft. As I said, there's about 100 operating F-18 pilots in the whole fleet of the uh, supporting the squadrons in, in Canada. Out of those 100, there's a, there's a training bill that you have to pay. There's a training squadron that has about 20 pilots that you need to keep in a training mode. You have pilots that are just newly trained, 15 pilots a year. So those cannot be deployed. For the first year, all they do is be seasoned, learn a bit more on squadron, and then eventually they become experienced enough so they can be deployed. So that's a, a 35 to 40 pilots that are not deployable, that you cannot fit into the scenario of, of being deployed. So you're working with the 60 pilots that are being deployed, but when they come back home, you want to give them some leave, but they knew that they need to do the NORAD mission. They need to be training the new pilots. They need to take some leave. They need to take some courses. So it's tight, but it works. Now, if you're introducing a small fleet of 24 airplanes, what you want them to do, because they cannot fit into the roles being done by the other 100 pilots. If you want to use them for the deployment role, where you're deploying the Super Hornet, because that's your new airplane, and uh, you would have, what, somewhere around 40 pilots for those 24 airplanes? 40 pilots to, to, to do what? Some of them need to be trained or are just have just been trained, so they're not qualified to be, uh, to be deploying an operational mission. Uh, you need a rotation uh, purpose, and it doesn't work. You don't have enough pilots, so you need to hire more. You need 60 pilots to be uh, flying your Super Hornets. And if you do this, then what do you do with your, your F-18 pilots who are sitting home that cannot help you on the Super Hornet, but then become, uh, well, I've got too many of them now for, to do the mission. So it just doesn't work when you have small fleets. We've looked at it before. We had, if the government had asked, we would have told them that we've, we've looked at the two fleet scenario. We've been looking at this for five years and, and, and it's got limiting issues uh, with this. It just was never discussed. Yeah. Well, what a shame. You know, I think that is the number one myth is that any government should actually consult the Air Force instead of making some arbitrary decisions. I think that's problem number one. But in terms of the interim fighter capability, then I guess, well, as, as history has shown, the Super Hornet by dissolved and it ended up being an acquisition of Hornets from Australia, which, as, as you just mentioned, you know, makes more sense. But my thinking is, where are we getting these extra pilots for these aircraft? You're right, Jyoti, and you're catching on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the pilots are always an issue. Right. And, and, right. and it, is, it is, again, an issue with, uh, with airplanes coming from Australia. The, those are used airplanes. So when they come in, they need to be refitted. They need to be – so there's a delay. It's, it, it's going to take a few years before – the time you make a decision to get uh, to get those airplanes, and you're finally using them in Canada. While you're doing this, the uh, the F-18 fleet, uh, the Canadian uh, existing fleet, is dwindling because we're, we're the numbers are being reduced. The airplanes are old, and uh, some of them are running out of hours. 
we're running short of pilots as well because uh, because uh, look at what's happening out there and uh, we have not been able to train as as many as we wanted to and there's been uh, there's been issues in slowing down everything so we don't have enough pilots right now to fly the existing cockpits that we have that are Canadian F-18s the Australian F-18s that come in are extra airplanes but it's not going to be an extra capability. It's not going to provide an interim capability. It's going to provide some extra numbers. If the government delays the decision again to uh, purchase or acquire a new fighter, well, we're going to have more of those uh, old airplanes. But that's about it. And I think one of the advantages, though, of having those additional aircraft is now you can spread out the life of each of each aircraft across a larger fleet. So you can probably keep them in service longer because you have more to fly with. That's some of the rationale into doing this. And that's the the, the good effect. But this effect is mitigated by the fact that we're getting close to a uh, a 50th anniversary for this CF-18. We're starting to to see... uh, the Canadian pilots flying a 50-year-old fighter. And uh, it, it's going to be be great. We'll still be able to maintain and fly that airplane, but it's certainly not going to be at the operational level. It needs to be operating uh, outside the country in a dangerous uh, environment. So uh, while we'll still be flying some fighter airplanes and we'll still be able to patrol the north, uh, the pilots in Canada will be hoping that there's... Uh, there's no issue that come up uh, that would uh, require them using weapons and certainly uh, having somebody use weapons against them. And uh, certainly the government will not be in a position to, uh, uh, to, to send their fighters into uh, uh, some uh, tough environment as part of a coalition if something happens in the next few years. Right. And it's a great segue, General, over to the Future Fighter Capability Project, which seeks to acquire 88 new fighters. As we all know, there's the Boeing Super Hornet Block 3, there is the Lockheed Martin F-35, and there is the Saab Gripen E, which are all contending for this program. What are your thoughts about why 88 aircraft, number one? And what are your thoughts just in general as a fighter pilot on what you think the Air Force needs? Because when I think about fighters, I think about all of them having similar capabilities. One of those three has low observable capability, which the others don't. But there's lots of other things other than low observable. There's electronic warfare, which is huge. And I don't think gets as much exposure because obviously electronic warfare is is more sensitive type discussions. But yeah, let's talk about Future Fighter. The requirement for 88 came again from the government. It was not based on the study uh, based uh, or done by the RCF. It's it's certainly a, a good number if you're sitting in the RCF uh, seat. If the government wants to buy more fighter aircraft, uh, that's good. That's great. But it wasn't uh, based on, on a study that was done uh, in, uh, in the Department of National Defense. So I'm not sure where it came from. Uh, it's, it's a reasonable number. Uh, it, it certainly gives uh, enough, uh, enough numbers to be able to use them for training, use them uh, for NORAD, uh, use them for contingency and, uh, and NATO operations. So I, I, I have no, no problem with number 88. The requirements made for the program for the competition were made by the department, but uh, there's a strong political influence into all this. And I say strong political influence in this program because up front, the liberal government had an issue in the in letting the F-35 compete. Uh, at first, they didn't want to, to have an F-35 competing, and then uh, then it uh, turned around and said, okay, well, the F-35 can compete, but the... Uh, uh, the rules for the competition or to, to be able to qualify were, were set so that the F-35 would not be advantage into the competition. And this is my opinion, but probably a lot of people in the RCF would, would uh, in the fighter world would feel the same. The F-35 is uh, operationally a much better airplane than the, uh, is the, the two other contenders. So operationally, you compare 
uh, an F-35 to the other two and uh, you compare their capabilities and the F-35 will come up front uh, easily. When, uh, when the competition was set for this, the other, the contenders knew this. They knew that the F-35 is uh, selected uh, uh, whenever it's in competition with them, it's selected by the, uh, the best countries. Uh, most countries that uh, had access to F-35 ran competition, ran selection processes, they all selected the uh, the F-35. If you're an Air Force officer today and you're looking at airplanes and you need to pick the best airplane for your uh, for your needs, right now in the Western world, the F-35 is, uh, is the best machine you can get. Now, it, it comes with a, a different uh, way of uh, supporting the whole program, the, the whole F-35 program. It's international in concept uh, and it's uh, difficult to fit into a national support program. And uh, while the F-35 is about the same price, acquisition price, as a Super Hornet, it's not much more expensive, the life cycle costs are, are more expensive with the F-35. So in terms of cost, the Super Hornet is, uh, is a better deal, and the grip uncertainly is a much better deal than the other two. It's cheaper, uh, it's a cheaper aircraft of the, uh, the three. But where it, uh, there was an issue being created was in the, uh, the category and the competition called the ITB, the uh, uh, Industrial Technological Benefits, uh, the value proposition that the companies were asked to provide and asked to guarantee money that would be reinvested into, into the country in Canada. Lockheed Martin and their international program for the F-35 could not guarantee, uh, make guarantees into, into the program. Their program is based on any company that wants to support the program competes internationally against any other company that can support or provide the same, uh, the same support or the same parts for the, uh, for the aircraft. Whoever is the best wins the contract. Canadian companies have been part of this process for the last uh, 20 years because uh, Canada has, is a development partner of the, uh, the F-35 and as such has paid millions of dollars every year to be part of this program, but given access to Canadian companies to the whole process. So a lot of Canadian companies are making a lot of money off the F-35 program under this arrangement. If Canada was to purchase the F-35, uh, again, the Canadian companies could, for the next 50 years, continue be part of this program and, uh, and uh, receive money. But because it is not a guarantee, it is penalized through this competition. So really, in the ITB-VP uh, portion, which is 20% of the competition, Lucky Martin is being penalized half of the points. So of the 20 points possible, uh, Lockheed Martin can only get 10 points maximum with this, uh, with its proposal, its value proposition. So when we look at the competition, 60% of the points are given to capability and the F-35 is uh, way ahead of the other two, but losing points in the life cycle cost and losing points in ITB. So my, my estimate into all this is that uh, really uh, the Super Hornet and the F-35 with the given rules are probably pretty close together. I, I expect it's gonna be one of those two. I expect an American airplane is gonna be selected. I expect the Gripen, which is, which is a great airplane, but comes with significant risks, which disadvantage uh, the, the Gripen into the, the capability section, the 60% points uh, being given. It's a new airplane. It doesn't exist as an operational fleet yet, and uh, there can be delays. Uh, the capabilities are not proven. So there's, there's a risk going there. So they're losing points into the 60, uh, 60%. It is a European aircraft. So there's a, a 2i, 5i requirement that the uh, manufacturers need to, to be able to meet. And the Gripen needs to, or SAB, needs to be providing a way and convince, not Canadians, but convince Americans that that airplane can be 2i, 5i capable. And in that sense, it can, we can put some, some, some uh, very secret systems inside the airplane and it's gonna be secure. How do you get those guarantees? And the guarantees need to be accepted by the Americans. 
significant risk because the Americans are trying to sell us an American airplane. Uh, so the government is, is actually involved into the sale of uh, the Super Hornets of the, or the F-35s. So in, in all of this, if I was to make an evaluation personally, I would say significant risk assigned to the Gripen. And because of those, uh, those reasons, I believe the Gripen will finish last in the competition. So because the government, the U.S. government has a vested interest in U.S. A U.S. company being awarded a program, you know, the U.S. government is looking out for U.S. industry, uh, just as I would hope Canadian government is looking out for Canadian industry. So therefore, is that risk, that perceived risk of the grip in E, is it a real risk or is it a risk that they want to push to the forefront to support their own American industry, their own American companies? I don't think they need to go there. For them, it's uh, uh, if they're being asked, are you willing to take a risk that uh, uh, some, some data will be leaked through some system because another country is going to be using your airplanes, another country is going to be using your system, and that's in that other country is Canada. Because that other country wants to deal with uh, with another country who's going to be providing support. So for the U.S., it's very difficult to control all the all the different factors that will be uh, around those those secret systems, because it's outside the country. Because it's uh, it's outside players who are going to be playing into this. Why accept the risk if you're in the U.S. shoes and you need to make uh, that that uh, that decision? I totally take that point, General, but then that means that are we placing all of our eggs in the one basket? Like, do we have to be, yes, granted, Canada, particularly through NORAD is, you know, it's a it's a binational command, but do we have to always be beholden to an American company or American interest? Uh, because there's lots of other technologies around the world that are very compelling, so I'm not saying that American programs are bad or that we shouldn't be supporting them. But similarly, Canada needs to look out for our best interests, regardless of where it comes from in the Western world. Uh, I agree. But if you're looking for your best interests, I, I would argue that uh, having uh, the U.S. as an ally through NORA to defend North America is, is actually in our best interest uh, mm -hmm. into all this. So... Mm -hmm. Being able to uh, to employ some uh, some systems that nobody else can between Canada and the U.S. in order to defend the uh, the country to defend North America is in our best interest. Mm. But is there is there not strength also in diverse platforms? For example, if everybody is operating F thirty fives and somebody finds a solution to defeat that low observable technology, then now isn't that a, a risk that everyone has kind of got? See, all fighter airplanes use about the same AIM-9 missiles. Right. Uh, if, if somebody finds a way to defeat them, uh, everybody's in a, is in a problem. It's always been a game of cat and mouse. Right. With, with, with fighters. Uh, when when the the U.S. first developed a, a way to use a, a tracking missile, the uh, other countries were trying to defeat it, and mm -hmm. then uh, and then uh, the creator would try to get smarter and uh, add uh, something to it so that they can bypass the counter, and then there would be a counter counter, and it's always been like this. The stealth advantage that the F thirty five has. And actually, uh, some Chinese airplanes and uh, Russian airplanes are starting to have the, the same advantages. It's a real advantage. Is somebody eventually going to be able to defeat it or at least to reduce it to something that is not such an advantage? Probably. It's, it's always been like this. But at the same time, you've got the uh, initial producers who know that eventually somebody is going to provide uh, a counter and they're working on a counter-counter. The Americans are working on their sixth uh, generation of fighters. Right, yes. This is coming out. So the advantage that you have now, whether it lasts 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, 
it is a definite advantage with the uh, the low observability that you've got with the F-35. It's an advantage that the other competitors do not have. And if you ask me, a fighter pilot, my first thing I'm looking for in a fighter is survivability. I don't mind going and uh, going to Yugoslavia or going to Libya and, and knowing that somebody is going to shoot at my airplane. But please give me the best system so I can defend myself and I have the best chance of coming back home to my wife and my kids. And for now, the survivability advantage is on the F-35 with the stealth aircraft. So you, you, you're going to get a lot of uh, fighter pilots who are going to be supporting, uh, supporting this. I can't argue that at all, General. I think uh, that is the number one requirement. If Canada is going to put our pilots in harm's way, give them the best tools to survive. So I, I agree with you 100% there, General. So this is a great way to actually, just to kind of close out the fighter discussion here, 88 aircraft, if we do the math with the numbers of pilots that you that you had spoken to earlier, we still need to produce more fighter pilots then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully that training pipeline will be, uh, will be oriented for that. If somebody else is listening to this, uh, this discussion, I am available. I have some free time. I wouldn't mind going back and flying. <laughs> Attaboy. I'd love to see you in the cockpit again, General. <laughs> I give my vote for that. Absolutely. Get back in there. So in terms of fighters, fighters are supported by tankers. And I always kind of thought, it, with all due respect to our Air Force, Two strategic tankers, even though we had the Hercules tactical tankers, which I think is there is a benefit to those. And it doesn't look like the RCAF is going to renew that capability, which I personally think is a mistake. But if you roll those capabilities into the strategic tanker program, okay, then, you know, now I don't have a problem with that. As long as the strategic tanker program has enough tankers to support the fleet. Because right now, two Polaris air refueling tankers, I don't think are enough. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, as far as I know, the RCF is looking for a replacement for the, uh, for the Polaris. And I think they've asked companies to, uh, to qualify to provide uh, a tanker. And, and there are really only two airplanes, the Airbus. Uh, the MRTT. Yeah, A330 and the, mm -hmm. the KC-46 uh, being built by uh, by Boeing. Those are the, the only two competitors that are considered strategic tankers in a sense that uh, we can use them to go um, to go internationally. Uh, this is the kind of airplanes you need to fly a bunch of F-18s across to Europe or to go to Asia or to go outside the continent. So I, I expect that uh, one of those two is, is going to be purchased eventually by uh by the government, and uh, and you're absolutely right. This is a this is an essential capability. You need to have tankers to go with your fighter fleet if you want to be able to project your uh, capability, be part of uh, coalitions uh, throughout the world. How many do you think is the right number for Canada? Well, I think uh, the the number that we had uh, because the the Polaris was not just a tanker; it was a uh, it was a uh, a passenger aircraft, a cargo aircraft, and a strategic tanker. So if you didn't did not need it for tanking, you could use it to move people around or to move uh, stuff around. That's the same concept that we want to pursue, that the RCF is uh, pursuing. And uh, an airplane like uh, the uh, the MRTT from, uh, from Airbus is a great airplane. You can put uh, a lot of passengers, you can put cargo and passengers, you can put cargo passengers and be able to refuel the airplane while you're going across, uh, across the ocean. So that's the kind of capability you want. We were working with a fleet of uh, six Polaris, probably a fleet of six to eight uh, MRTT or, or KC-46 strategic tankers would be great, as long as they're airplanes that can be, uh, can be used for different roles. So if you've got the multi-role capability, six airplanes would be a minimum, and all of them need to have the, uh, the tanking capability. In the, for the Polaris, we've been living with only two of those six airplanes being able to refuel, being fitted with equipment to refuel, and that was not enough. So if you're gonna have only six airplanes, make them all tankers, and we have a decent capability. 
Right. Fair enough. So let's talk about the future fighter lead-in trainer. I think that that decision should probably be made after we buy a fighter. And I think that is going with the timelines. I think that's the way it's going to happen. But what are your thoughts about having the future fighter lead-in trainer as also a fleet that could support the Snowbirds mission? It's not lost on me that the Snowbirds will probably be operating 60 plus years. And yes, you can you can make an aircraft operate that long. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. We've been flying the Tudors, and, and you're right, it's uh, close to 60 years, and there's no replacement in sight. And there's no replacement in sight because the discussion to get a replacement aircraft for the Snowbirds involves a discussion, are the Snowbirds required? Should we keep flying the Snowbirds? Because as soon as you, you open that, uh, that discussion, somebody's going to be asking, why do we need the Snowbirds? It does not provide an operational capability. It's, it's just for show. Do we have to pay for all of this? And that discussion is very difficult for politicians to step in because politicians love what the Snowbirds provide to the Canadian identity, but at the same time to, to say that we're going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars to buy airplanes for the Snowbirds, it would be a hot potato politically. So they don't necessarily want to get involved into this. And the department has, uh, has an issue in trying to figure out what do we do? So Nobody wants to touch that discussion, and we keep on flying the Tudor. So <laughs> right. this happening, and this is why we have a 60-year-old Tudor aircraft uh, being flown by, by the Snowbirds. Now, there's the discussion you bring about the future lead and uh, training aircraft. You're right. We need, we need an aircraft. We've known for the last uh, seven years that we need to be replacing the Hawk aircraft that we're flying in this role right now. That airplane is going to be out of hours uh, eventually and soon, and it needs a replacement to be able to continue training, uh, training our pilots. We've been waiting to get a decision on the fighter so that we can actually tailor the aircraft we buy to the fighter. And I say this because... If we were to buy the uh, the F-35 especially, that comes with a lot of simulation technology, uh, does not have a dual cockpit. So the training for the F-35, a lot of this is being done in, in a simulation mode. If we were to acquire an airplane like this, like the F-35, there's a chance to be pushing a lot of the training hours down to a cheaper, smaller platform like the Leonardo M346 or the, the Boeing T7, which are great lead-in trainers, but modern airplanes where the cockpit can be configured to be able to support more precisely the fighter that eventually your pilots are going to be graduating to. So this is why we've waited to, to make a decision. If you buy one of those airplanes, whether it's the, the 346 or, or the T7, or, or if somebody comes up with, with something else, it would be an ideal time to be looking at what the, uh, the Snowbirds are flying and purchase a fleet a bit bigger to cover what the Snowbirds need. If the government wants to keep the Snowbirds flying, if that requirement is confirmed, then it would be the ideal solution to be able to provide the same kind of airplanes where a lot of your pilots for the Snowbirds are, have been instructors, have been fighter pilots, would have flown that airplane, would be qualified on this airplane, would already be familiar and would be an easier step into a Snowbird role. And out of a Snowbird role, it would be an easier fit into a training or, or a fighter, uh, fighter role. So, it would be great. You know, and I argue, General, that also, if we were thinking bigger picture, perhaps you would also increase the numbers to not only for that downloaded fighter training role, not only for snowbirds, but also perhaps for adversary air. Yes, there's, there's a bunch of roles you can, you can put in there. And uh, in our lingo, we call it a utility role, where you could have uh, some of those airplanes uh, flying in Bagotville and Cold Lake for utility. It can be an adversary role, but it can also be airplanes that fighter pilots can actually fly. And you lower the number of hours you're flying on your expensive platform. You, you know, Joti, that, uh, and we had the discussion before, fighter pilots fly about 95% of their hours as training hours. 
the 5% hours that you fly as operational hours, this is when you're using the airplane capability. You're only doing this if you're deployed uh, somewhere for an operational reason, or if you're doing a, uh, an actual live patrol alert for NORAD, which do doesn't happen often. So in my experience, about 5% of my flying was, was really operational flying. The rest of the time was training training to be great when I would be required to be uh, to be operational. Well, those hours cost a lot of money. And there's a finite number of hours that each $100 million fighter airplane we're going to buy have to fly. Once you've flown those hours, the airplane is done. So wouldn't it be great if you could push a lot of those hours that the pilots need to do for training, you could push it into a cheaper platform like a T7, like an M346 or one of those airplanes, because you can actually configure the cockpit to be very, very similar to your F-35 fighter or whatever the Canada is going to buy. And the pilots can get the flying experience, the flying uh, hours uh, that they need or some of it in a cheaper platform because you've got utility airplanes in Cold Lake and, and Baggettville. So let's talk about a helicopter fleet. Uh, you know, I want to make sure that our discussion kind of spans the gamut, but uh, let's talk about the Griffins. What are your thoughts about that fleet in terms of its capabilities for the RCAF? And what do you think the Air Force needs moving forward as a replacement? Because you know that the Griffin fleet is going through the Griffin Limited Life Extension Program right now. I think a lot of that is just to kind of keep it airworthy in terms of air traffic control requirements and what have you. But it's not going to keep the aircraft flying forever. You're right. If uh, if there's a fleet that needs a replacement, it's the, uh, it's the Griffin fleet. We're using this fleet to support the Army. When the Griffin fleet was bought, it was not necessarily what Army pilots and helicopter pilots would have wanted as the uh, the best aircraft for the role. A lot of this uh, decision was because that airplane was being built in uh, in Canada. We need a replacement for this airplane. What we've learned in the last 10 years, especially through uh, when we uh, flew through Afghanistan, was that that aircraft was underpowered. We had to strip as much as we could just to be able to fly the helicopter in Afghanistan in the uh, in the high mountains. It just wasn't powerful enough. We could fly it, but put no passengers aboard or take a bunch of equipment out of the helicopter, hoping that you don't need it so that you could put some passengers in. And then we wanted to use it as an escort for the uh, for the Chinooks. Wasn't a great airplane to do this again. Putting the guns was adding weight, was adding vibrations. It caused uh, some issues. So we we learned quickly that we we could do it, but it wasn't the ideal aircraft. So... Right now, there's no quick plan to replace it with something that we would need, like something like a, like a Black Hawk would be the utility aircraft that you need, something a little bigger, more powerful, that uh, is multi-role, that you can use the utility role, but you can use it in, a, in an escort role as well. But that's expensive, and it stands in line when you need a, a lead-in trainer, you need a tanker, you need a fighter, uh, you need all those uh, those requirements. So... Helicopter is kind of forgotten the corner. Yeah, it seems like it. So another question that I have is the RPAS program. What is your thoughts? It, originally, it was the Just Ask program. It seems to be taking forever to come to fruition. Why is that? You're right. It is. It is taking forever. We needed this when we uh, in in early 2000 when we were going to Afghanistan. Uh, we leased uh, some uh, some UAV from uh, from Israel to uh, fill our needs in Afghanistan while we could put a, a plan up to procure our own fleet of, uh, of UAVs. And here we are 20 years later and uh, we still haven't done, uh, done this. So it's gonna take years again. And again, it's sitting in the, the pool of projects, of uh, platforms that you need to buy. There's a finite number of people that can work those issues and the government procurement system in DND and outside of DND is just unbelievable. It, it used to take 10 years to go through a program. It's now approaching 20 years. It's becoming the norm for anything you want to buy. And let me tell you that uh, once you set the, and define your requirement and you get to actually uh, put your hands on 20 years later, the requirement may be very much different. And you may regret 
putting some of the, the stuff you wanted to have 20 years before into what you're actually getting 20 years later. It's a huge problem, General, because you're absolutely right. Not only might your requirements change, but technology changes so quickly that if, you, if you've got a 20-year gestation between you know, project definition and acquisition, yeah, I suspect that everything would be different. Absolutely. And uh, and my experience uh, in Ottawa has made a cynic out of out of all this. I remember being being the urge of being at a meeting and we were discussing search rescue aircraft that we need to to get through. The requirement had been worked 15 years before. When I look at the requirements and the discussion, in my mind, I was saying, well, you know what? I I don't need this anymore. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and I was told very clearly, don't you dare. Don't you dare, because if you change the requirement, then the process needs to start again, or it's going to put some stuff in the requirement uh, uh, process going forward, and it's going to delay things, and we can't afford that. And I was told to shut up, accept it the way it is, and go with the flow if you ever want to see that aircraft flying on your basis you know general that is absolutely unacceptable in my opinion my humble opinion you are the leader of the air force at the time you know the requirements you know what you need you know what the air force needs how dare some other bureaucrat come in and tell you what you need or what you don't need and just because it's expedient for them to get a program through, maybe they should look at their program process that is not agile, right? I think that's the key word. These systems have to be more agile. Yes, and we've been pointing out that the uh, the procurement system was a big issue. We've been saying it for the last 10 years. And the, the politicians have come up and, uh, and everybody has said, we're going to fix this, we're going to fix this. Hasn't been fixed. So. I know our time is getting short, so let's close with this last question, which I've been eagerly looking forward to, to asking you, and that is about bases. I general, and I, I say this with all due respect, I've been to some bases and I see very little movement, very few aircraft. Do you think some bases should be closed or a base should be closed? And what is the background behind that discussion? Well, it depends how you look at it and who's looking at it. For the uh, the size of uh, of the uh, the Air Force, certainly the number of bases that we have, when you look at only the requirement for the Air Force, it's uh, there are way too many bases. It's uh, costing a lot of money to maintain and keep all those uh, bases uh, operational, and uh, we we've been saying it for years. Now. The decision is not made by the uh, the Air Force to open or close a base. And the reasons to open or close a base have many facets that are, are not just about the Air Force. There are jobs, uh, local jobs. If you close a base, uh, you, you're going to impact the community. And uh, it needs to be a political decision. I'll give you the example of uh, Goose Bay. It's a, it's a base that in the 70s, 80s, 90s was busy with... Uh, our allies from uh, Europe coming to uh, to fly uh, and, and train out of uh, Goose Bay. And it was great for the community to have that base. We used the base as a deployment, Canadian deployment base, support base uh, for NORAD, because we had the facilities uh, and, and people there. Now, when uh, the activities, European activities uh, uh, stopped, the only pure RCF requirement for Goose Bay was uh, to, to have some space to be able to deploy once in a while and operate out of. It did not need a whole base. It could have easily been turned into a civilian uh, complex with a, uh, a small military capability. And the government did not want to impact the community, wanted to keep the, the operation open, and told the RCF that uh, it's there, it's not closing, so why don't you send capabilities. And I remember being in DND, not just uh, through the Air Force, but uh, having the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force together in the same room. And the question was, okay, what can we, we send to Goose Bay so that the base is, is as operational as we can? Uh, what could the, uh, the Army do for training? So it was not, uh, not necessarily 
where's the best place to do something? It was, there's a place to do something, find something to do there. And the Air Force was told to keep a squadron of, uh, of uh, Griffins for search and rescue. Not that we need the search and rescue in, uh, in Goose Bay. Certainly, there will be at times requirement for search and rescue in Goose Bay, but to station, and, and usually you use a strategic point to station your assets for search and rescue, and Goose Bay was not, uh, was, was not identified as one of those. It became one of those because we had to keep some assets in Goose Bay. Like you said earlier about the pilot discussion, it's got to be hard to fill that spot because in the wintertime, who would necessarily want to be there? And if you've got to find a requirement to staff, um, yeah. Yeah, well, we had to make many promises to people we're saying to Goose Bay to tell them uh, when they left the exact date they would come out and ensure they're not being kept longer than the date they were promised uh, to stay there. We, uh, we had to twist arms uh, to send uh, people there. It's uh, some parts of Canada will have that effect. But at the same time, you always have a few that will say, I absolutely want to be there. Send me in, coach. So sure. you take advantage of those people. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's an interesting discussion. It's very much a political one, but kind of a shame that, you know, some of these government monies have to be spent to keep an installation open that doesn't really have a requirement from the Air Force anyways. Everything uh, for me at that time was uh, was above my pay grade. Those discussions were, were political, as you said. Uh, there are some, some uh, regional inputs, provincial inputs, federal uh, uh, factors that uh, needed to come in play, and uh, somebody had to make a, make a decision, uh, and, and they did, and we were told what to do. And on it goes. <laughs> General Blondin, thank you, sir, so much for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate your service, and I appreciate the time that you've extended to us here at CDR. You've been a gem. I, I found this a very enjoyable and, and insightful discussion and informative as well. So thank you again, sir. I really appreciate the time. You're welcome, Jyoti. I always enjoyed having discussions with you through the last 20 years. It has been my, my honor and my pleasure, General. So thanks everybody for joining us on this episode. I'd like to thank again my guest, Lieutenant General Yvonne Blanden, and I'd also like to thank Paraton for their sponsorship of this episode. And I encourage all of our listeners to please visit CDR at CanadianDefenseReview.com. Have a great day, everybody. Tune in next time for another Canadian Defense Focus podcast from CDR Radio.